morning comes from Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. See with large letters that I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those that want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. For now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Brothers, amen. All right, y'all can be seated. Now I'm preaching in a mask, okay? Solidarity with all of you in the room. Uh, but you can't see my facial expressions. That also means I can't see your facial expressions. Um, for some of you that have the, the RBF, you know, the resting Baptist face, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, the resting Baptist face, okay. You may want to keep the mask on just from here on out. I don't know. It may just serve you better. I don't know. But um, if, if you are uh, uh, happy or, or like something that has been said or it's convicting, like you need to really work on the eyebrows, you know, like use those eyebrows. Like you can frown if I'm saying something a little crazy. You can, you know, lift the eyebrows if something kind of, you know, sparks you. Um, since you can't see my mouth move, it'll probably be easier for you to fall asleep. So Mr. Tommy in the uh, overflow room right now, man, like well, I'll send someone to check, okay? So just let's, let's not do that, all right? Um, we have come to the end of Galatians. And I, I really didn't want to have the first Sunday back be the very last sermon in a book. I wanted to start something new. Um, and especially since verse 11 just seems really exciting. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. You know, you read that and you're like, okay, he's done writing. Paul's clearly done here. But this ending to his letter, it, it may be the most profound part of the entire letter. A lot of scholars think that Paul, they, they give a lot of reasons for why he wrote verse 11, but some of them believe that it's almost as if he was dictating the rest of the letter to a scribe. And the scribe has been writing the letter and then he gets to the very end, he's like, okay, this part I'm going to write myself. This is too important. See with what large letters that I write. I want you to notice what comes next. It's, it's emphasis. It's all, some have said it's almost like now he has, he has, you know, turned on the bold, you know, for his, his Word documents. We've bolded the rest of this. Or, you know, the people who, who type in all caps on social media, you know, it's like all caps everything. And you hear them yelling at you, you know? So it's, it's for emphasis here. See with what large letters that I'm writing to you with my own hand. He doesn't want us to miss the end of this letter. And it's an important word for us, especially in the day and age that we live. We are currently living in a time that is ripe with division. We knew that last year. We've known that for the last three years. There's been 
more and more division, more and more polarization across the country. But boy, 2020 is just a different beast, huh? It's a different beast. Think about it. We have a global pandemic, which causes people to respond to it in all kinds of different ways. And then we have more racial strife. Once again, more hashtags, more names, more bodies. And it's an election year, okay? (laughs) Like, an election year. All of this happening at the same time. All of that to say, this year, where we find ourselves, not, not only where we find ourselves, where the Lord has planted us. Where the Lord has planted us. There we go. Okay, sorry. Where God has providentially placed us. You're here in this moment because God wants you to be here. Alive at this time in 2020. But in this age of polarization, the church, maybe more so than any other institution, anybody else in the whole world, simultaneously has the greatest motivation to stay united and the greatest track record of dividing. Think about it. We are prone to division because the gospel is so inclusive. Think about it. Like you don't, you don't have to be similar in any other way. The only thing you have to have in common with the, another person in this room is that you both believe in Jesus. One topic. One thing. And you are brothers and sisters for life. So that means that we can have so many other things that are not in common. So, so the church, even though we have the greatest motivator to stay united, the gospel of Jesus Christ, we also face the greatest likelihood of being tempted to be divided because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it's so inclusive. It brings so many people in from so many different backgrounds. I want us to journey through this storm of 2020 together, and I want us to come out on the other side more united because God has brought us through. But as, as we talk about church unity, and we we'll be talking about church unity a lot today, it's important to realize that not all church unity is good. Not all church unity is good. There were churches in the mid-1800s, PCA churches, you know, Presbyterian churches, uh, Southern Baptist churches. They were united all right. They were united in supporting slavery. All church unity is not good. Sometimes division is necessary and church unity is empty. What good is church unity, for instance, if we're united in sin? What what good is it? Amen. May May we never then be united in legalism or moralism or racism or any other sin. And if we are If we are, then I pray that the Lord would destroy what we're building. If we become a church that's united in sin, I pray that the Lord would destroy it and bring us to repentance. So we're not just pursuing unity for unity's sake. We're pursuing unity that flows from the gospel. It's it's this kind of unity that is rooted in the cross 
And we achieve gospel unity when each one of us from different backgrounds rally around Jesus and crucify everything else that would keep us from being unified in Jesus. That's essentially what Galatians 6, 11 through 18 is about. So a question for us then. If church unity is important, and it is, what's the most dangerous threat to our unity as a church in a world that is becoming so increasingly divided? Think about it. You can write down an answer if you have anything to write down. You can put it in your phone. What do you think? What's the most dangerous threat to church unity? As you're thinking, I'm going to just tell you a couple things that it's not. So these are a couple unsatisfactory answers to that. Disagreements, debates, and diversity. Those are not threats to church unity. Okay? Disagreements are not necessarily signs of division. In fact, disagreements, a church where you have people who have the freedom to express their opinions that may be opposed to one another, to talk it out, to have the disagreement, to debate one another, that could actually be a sign of church unity. That it could be a sign of a church that is moving toward health. Because if you're able to voice an opinion that would be disagreed in the church by somebody else, that means you don't have a uniform church. And a church that is uniform, that cares about uniformity, everybody believing the exact same way about every single issue under the sun, that's not unity. Unity requires diversity. Diversity of persons, diversity of opinions, all rallying around Jesus. So, so disagreements and diversity, that's not, that's not a, a threat to church unity. Here's another one for you. Sin. Oh, you heard me right. Sin, in general, is not a threat to church unity. I know you think I'm crazy for saying that. Now, sin can threaten church unity, but to presume that a unified church requires the absence of sin is, is neither practical nor biblical. No, a church with a gospel culture has members who sin against each other. And then they confess, and they repent, and they forgive, and they maintain unity. So we are free to disagree and debate with one another about any topic under the sun without fear of division. How? When the gospel is centered in our hearts and in our church. We are free from the fear that one sin, even one big sin, can blow up what we're building when the gospel is the engine of our church and of our lives. So the most dangerous threat to our church and to our city, it's not disagreements, okay? It's not left-wing or right-wing politics. That's not, that's not the most dangerous threat. 
Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Lane Kiffin, even <laughs> Nick Saban, no. They're not the greatest threats to church unity. The most dangerous threat to our church and to churches in our city is a deluded gospel. A fake Christianity. A gospel that gets close enough where it looks like the biblical gospel, but it's actually not. That is the greatest threat. A Christianity that says Jesus plus something else is required for you to be saved, forgiven, and accepted by God's people and by God himself. That is the greatest threat to our church. It leads to a church culture that says that you have to believe in Jesus and share our politics and demonstrate external behaviors. You have to meet these imposed standards that we have created. Then we will accept you. That is the greatest threat to our church. So a question for you then, how can we resist division and how can we ensure that the gospel remains central and primary in our church? Because in order to remain or to maintain gospel unity, the gospel must be the central driving force of our church's culture. If it's at the center, we're free to disagree on all kinds of things. If it's marginalized and we centralize something else, we're in trouble. So how can we make sure the gospel remains right at the center? Paul's been talking about it throughout the whole letter, and now he brings it to a point right here at the end. Three things. First, we beware fake Christianity. We look out for it. We know what it looks like. We beware. Beware fake Christianity. Second, we boast only in Christ. And third, we walk by the gospel's standard. All right. Let's start. Beware fake Christianity. Paul says there's a danger. There's a danger to the church. Verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Fake Christianity was the religion of the false teachers. They were close to Christianity, but it was an illusion. Um, it, it proclaimed proximity to Jesus. They were close to Jesus, but really what they cherished most was the approval of man. They, they it cherished outward appearances more than anything else. The free, undiluted grace of God in the gospel was just too much for them. It was too scandalous. It required too much risk and sacrifice, and it did not help them gain status in their circles. And this, this actually should be huge for you if you've been following along in Galatians, because throughout the letter, we've learned a ton about Paul's opponents. We've learned about these false teachers. We've learned the content of their teaching. We learned that they have this formula for how salvation works, that you have to believe in Jesus, and then you have to obey the law, and if you do those two things, you will be saved. And we learned how that was contrary to Paul's gospel, which was you believe in Jesus and then you are saved. And as an overflow, as a byproduct, then you obey God. But the false teachers from Jerusalem, 
they were teaching these Gentile Christians that they were close to getting it, but they weren't quite there. They still required something more. If they really wanted God to forgive them, if they really wanted to belong to the family of God, then they had to be circumcised. Now, Paul was wise to their tricks. He saw right through them. Although these false teachers were masquerading as those who deeply revered the law, you can see them, right? They they come in, we know Paul's a good guy, he's trying his best, but he is completely disregarding the law of God. He is telling you that you don't have to keep the law, and we love the law. We love the law so much, it it is honey to us, it is sweet to us, it is treasure. And so we want you to be accepted by God. So just do what he says in his word. Keep the law. They they masqueraded. They were concerned that Paul's gospel negated obedience. But Paul saw right through that facade. Have you ever noticed that throughout Galatians, we never really get to the motivation of the false teachers. We just kind of assume it. We just hear what they're teaching. We never really know why they're doing it. Paul tells us right here. Here's their real motivation. Their real motivation in verse 12. <laughs> These calls for circumcision, it was just for the approval of man. They didn't care about whether the Galatian Christians actually were approved or accepted by God. The false teachers wanted to be accepted and approved of by the people back in Jerusalem. They weren't really interested in obeying the law themselves in verse 13. For even those who were circumcised do not themselves keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. They just feared their fellow Jews. That was it. They couldn't get fully on board with the cross of Christ because they knew that if they did, they would suffer the consequences in Jerusalem. They didn't want to bear the marks of Jesus that would come through persecution. So they were willing to force the Galatians to bear the mark of slavery to the law through circumcision just to protect their own reputation. This this desire to approve others. You guys ever been approached by somebody who wants you to sign a petition? You know, like you'll just be in a random spot, right? Like you'll be outside drinking coffee or eating lunch and somebody will walk up to you and say, hey, I got a petition. Would you mind signing it for me? And and they tell you about it. This happened to me once. I'm, I, I feel so, I don't know, kind of debate whether I should share the story or not, but um, you may think less of me afterward. But this person comes up to me, completely catches me off guard, hands me a petition. I don't even remember what it was about at this point. But hands me a petition, and they tell me just a little bit about it, and they say, here, they hand me the, hand me the pen, like just reach it out to me like that. And so I just find myself like two seconds later holding a pen, you know. And so at this point, it's like it was some good cause, you know, but I didn't really know anything about it. So the wise thing would have just been, hey, man, I may do that later and like go do some research. But I kind of felt the pressure in the moment, you know, like, you're like, oh, I don't want him to think that I don't support a good thing, you know, so I, I probably should sign this. And so I get, and I start, it's almost like all these thoughts running through my head as the pen is going toward the paper. And as I start going down, I'm like, yeah, but what if this is something really bad? I don't want my name on this. And I kid you not, I wrote down a fake name. <laughs> a fake name. I didn't have to put a phone number or anything like that, but I probably would have just put a random number too. I don't know. That's how, like I said, you may think less of me. But I felt that pressure in the moment for that person to think positively of me, you know? That's essentially what 
the false teachers were doing. They wanted to make a good showing. They wanted to be accepted by their peers. They wanted to satisfy those who had power and influence over them. They wanted to be able to go back to Jerusalem and say, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but don't get mad at us because we actually care about the law. We're not like Paul, the one you're persecuting. We're not like him. We don't negate the law. We have proof. Look at the Galatian churches. We went down to those Gentiles. We required them to be sacrificed, to be circumcised. The false teachers prioritized outward appearances over inward change. Oh, and we are prone to this error. And it's an easy one to make. It's easy to prioritize outward appearance, external behaviors, and to centralize something other than the cross. Because the alternative to centralize the cross and focus our attention on the cross is so counterintuitive to our nature in the flesh. The alternative involves inward change. And we would rather just put on a showing. It's so much easier to appear holy. It's so much easier to win approval from those who can't see the motives of our heart. It's easy to satisfy finite humans. And it's much more natural for us to gain and demand approval on the basis of external behaviors or values that are devoid of the cross. We claim that Jesus is our everything. That the gospel is the central motivator for our decisions and our actions. But then we are so prone to crowd the center of our hearts with other values, other loves, other desires. And Jesus is not a savior who will share real estate in the center of your heart, the center of your being. He is Lord Every other part of our lives must flow from the cross of Christ. The cross isn't just another part of our lives. We aren't equal parts Christian and conservative or Christian and liberal. We are accepted by God fully and forever on the basis of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And that's it. Not on where we align with American politics. but it's just inful and in need of grace. And by faith in Jesus, recipients of eternal blessing, citizens of an eternal kingdom, and children of God. Do you treat one another like that? Do you treat another member of our faith family as if they are a citizen of an eternal kingdom, a co-heir of the world with Christ? a brother or sister in an eternal family? Or do we reject them because they don't align with us in some other way? If we allow fake Christianity to spread in our hearts and church, we may find unity. We may root people out and bring people in and find a kind of unity. But if it's in a fake Christianity, it won't be in Jesus. It'll be in politics. It'll be in religious traditions. And it might even be in sin that actually unites us. So let's search our own hearts and ask God to reveal any evidence of boasting in one another's flesh. And let's repent and recoil from anything that would be added to Jesus in order for us to be accepted by God or each other. Beware this danger of fake Christianity.
Now, Paul gives kind of a solution to this problem. He gives an alternative in verses 14 and 15. He says, boast only in Christ and crucify everything else. (laughs) Boast only in Christ and crucify everything else. Verse 14, Paul writes, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Paul says here in the strongest of terms, far be it from me. May it it never be the case that I would boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is central to Christianity. What matters most, according to the scriptures, is not what Jesus taught, not what Jesus said. What matters most, what's most central, is what Jesus came to do. Paul doesn't say, be it far from me to boast except in the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. The cross. The cross. The cross is central. And when you think about it, when you think about the Gospels, these these kind of sort of mini biographies of the life of Jesus, you, you realize what they focus most of their attention on, right? Like it has some, some, some of the Gospels have birth stories and then they have some early teaching, the calling of the disciples. But the bulk of every single Gospel, the bulk is the last week of Jesus' life. That's, that's really where it all boils down. And, and we have to reckon with this. It, it wasn't the teachings of Jesus the false teachers struggled with. You notice that? They weren't debating you know, well, Jesus said this. I'm not sure how that relates to the Old Testament. I'm not sure how that relates to how I think the world should be. Now, they're not, they're not debating Jesus' teachings. It was the cross of Jesus, the cross, that was their stumbling block. The cross of Jesus is so scandalous, they actually had to create external rules to soften its claim. But Paul says our boasting should be reserved only for the cross. Because only at the cross... We find true and full acceptance with God. It's the only place. You can't find it by trying to be good enough, by trying to keep enough rules. It's only at the cross do you find full acceptance with God. It is only through the cross of Christ that we are able to fully accept one another with finality. Think about it. You can fully accept someone who has deeply sinned against you. You can approve of them. You can forgive and died for our sins. He hung where we should have hung. He was cursed as we should have. Us can be our only boast because all we contributed to our salvation is our sin. And by faith, all we receive is blessing, love, and belonging. Do you see how this radically motivates how we live and how we interact with each other in a local church? When the cross is central, when the cross is our only boast, we see each other and treat each other on the basis of who Jesus is. And what he has done, not on who we are and what we may have done or left undone. We believe in something here at Trace Crossing. Um, We believe in the five solas. One of those is that we believe salvation comes by grace alone. We cherish that. We don't work for our salvation. We receive it as a gift by God's grace. Our doctrine of salvation by grace alone leads to a church culture of grace alone. And if you've ever extended it that far... You can't celebrate 
that you have been freely accepted by God on the basis of what Jesus has done, and then create a new rule for acceptance for somebody else. It's free. All through Jesus. But, of course, we do value other things, and we should. It's not bad. It's not bad to value other things. We, we are called to bring the gospel to bear on all of society. And when, when we start discussing political, societal, or family issues, our ideas, they're going to be different. They're going to be different. And that's okay, because God has not called us to uniformity. But how do we honor and cherish those differences and prevent them from tearing us apart? Well, we've already said it. First, we have to remember our only boast is Christ in in his work on the cross, not our politics or moral behavior or family decisions. But when those secondary priorities that are important but not primary or central, when they start to usurp the gospel's prominence in our hearts as the basis of our treatment of one another, we have to crucify them. Look what Paul says at the end of verse 14. He says, Far be it for me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says, Boast only in Christ and then crucify anything else that would threaten that boasting. He actually writes that it is by the cross of Christ that the world has been crucified and that we have been crucified to the world. The world is dead to us. He says, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. This is why it is foolish to boast in anything of the world. It's foolish to sell your soul for a political agenda, a politician, or or advancement in your career. It is foolish to do that because the world is dead to you. It is foolish to evaluate your brothers or sisters in Christ on the basis of what your favorite theologian or Bible teacher says. It is foolish to feel more pride and joy in being approved by worldly powers than by being approved by God himself. N.T. Wright, N.T. Wright has this amazing section on this in his commentary on Galatians. I'm going to read it to you. The cosmos has had a sentence of death passed on it so that God's new world, God's new creation can be born out of the old. This new creation began with Jesus himself at his resurrection, continues with the spirit-given new life which wells up in all those who belong to the Messiah and will go on until, as Paul says in Romans 8, the whole creation will be set free from its own slavery and will share the freedom of the glory of God's children. And listen to this question he asks. How then can anyone who has glimpsed Jesus as the crucified Messiah want to cling to the values, the identity markers, the way of life of the world that has already been pronounced dead on the cross? He writes here, What matters is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, neither the marks of the flesh of the Jew, nor of the absence of such marks in the Gentile. N.T. Wright closes, he says, What matters is that God has unleashed upon the world his own new creation, and through the gospel of Jesus, invites all to share 
equally in its blessings, its new life, and its promises for the future. We have to crucify anything, anything that would threaten to take the place of the gospel in our church. We have to put it to death. And when we do that, we are free to enjoy the world, interact with the world, and impact the world for good. World crucifixion is not world avoidance. We are free to engage with the issues of the day, and we're free to do it together when those issues are not central to our church. When the gospel is, we are free to do that. So please, do not give yourself over to anything in this world. It is not worth it because the world has a death sentence that's already been pronounced by the death of Jesus on the cross. Instead, open yourself up to Jesus. Give yourself completely over to him because the new creation is all that matters. So boast in Christ, Paul says, and crucify everything else. One final word here. He says, we should walk by the rule of the gospel. This is the result. The result of boasting only in the cross, the result of crucifying the world, is walking by rule, by the rule of the gospel. He says it in verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. All right. Paul says when we walk according to the rule of the gospel, the standard of the cross, we will see specific results. He was on to say in verse 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. When we centralize the gospel, we will bear the marks of Jesus. We will bear the marks of Jesus. Centralizing the cross means that we will welcome whatever suffering comes from following Jesus. If we lose social prominence by defending a brother or sister here because of the gospel, it's worth it. We will bear the marks of Jesus here. And Paul also says that we will be people of mercy and peace. Do you want to be a people of mercy and peace? Do you want peace to reign in a culture that is at war with itself? That would be a counterculture. It would be a culture of peace. That can't happen if you're centralizing something other than the cross of Christ. It is only through the cross that we have peace with God and we have peace with one another. So I, I would encourage you. I would encourage you. You don't have to avoid the world. You don't have to avoid all of the issues that are flying around us on social media or in your conversations at work. You don't have to avoid them. Don't give in to them, though. Boast only in the cross of Christ and put to death anything that would cause you to set up a new standard by which you accept or reject other people in our church. We will remain unified in the gospel when we centralize the gospel in our lives. So I pray that we would do that.